the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everyone. Ian Simpkins here. And like many of you, we're with our family, our loved ones, and we're looking to kind of follow in the ways of Jesus by slowing down a little bit, breathing deeply, simply resting and celebrating. And so uh, for this week, we're sharing some of our favorite moments from the last year. So we didn't want you to think we're trying to pull a fast one on anyone. This is just sort of what we call a, a best of. And uh, so we hope that you enjoy this week some moments that we've loved from this last year doing the show. And uh, we really, really look forward to being with you again in the new year. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Well, what do you think of that, Brian Fromm? I, it, it just went from our normal intro into like some nice Christmas music. Did I'm you like, hear that crossfade? That was very well done, John. PJ, getting props for the crossfade. Yep. I mean, am I even using that phrase tis correctly? The, tis the it is a crossfade. Tis the season. Is that also like a tis the fe- season for crossfade? <laughs> As the good book says, tis the season. It doesn't even book. say tis the season. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus should. once said, "Tis the season." Yes. Like, the original Aramaic actually reads, "Happy holidays." Happy. Oh. <laughs> Happy holidays. Now that's the passion translation. Yeah. <laughs> I had, a bu- I had a buddy help me welcome people at church yesterday, like at the door, and I was standing there with them, and somebody said happy holidays, so he gave them a hard time. Like, oh, very cool. And so I just started happy holidaying everybody that came in <laughs> just to mess with them. I was like, happy holidays, oh, happy holidays. Boy. As we read in the Torah, <laughs> Starbucks cups were wrong. <laughs> that was funny. Remember that scandal? That was right. That ridiculous scandal. Well, hey, everyone, it's Christmas Eve. I don't know if it's a, is that a stressful day for people, or is it sort of like... It's a stressful uh, day for everyone, everyone. Is it a stressful day for? Are you stressed? I'm not overly stressed, but it is a service at night. And, yeah, uh, you but know, it's a candle at service. Though, I know, but you stressed. just any like with any service, you want to do a good job, and there. Uh, but it's a fun service. It's a great one to look forward to. What's but, your favorite part of the service? Oh, a hundred percent. We do what most churches do. Uh, the last thing we do is everybody has a candle and we light the candles and sing Silent Night together. It's a it's not just a highlight of that service. That is a highlight of the year right yeah. there. So how about you? What do you like about the Christmas Eve service? I mean, it feels cliche to say the candlelit closing. Yeah. Uh, I will also do you say do it this. the same way um, that I just described that? Well, it's close. Yeah, we tweak it a little bit each year. This year, the theme is really specifically light and dark. Um, but also a close second, like little kids in Christmas outfits. Nice. Come on. Oh, my goodness. Yep. But it, it feels... It, it, to me, it's just like the family coming yep. together. Like it just feels like a like a really beautiful family time, and yep. I I love I love even though like I won't be able to be with my family in Detroit mm-hmm. for a couple of days. It feels like man, I've been blessed to have family yeah. in both places, and yeah. I 
Christmas is, uh, I love I like I it love that Christmas. way. I also love the palm branches, like the kids waving them. And- okay, we need, <laughs> we need to have a conversation. <laughs> and then there's the Paschal lamb, I think, right? And there's the, nah. We just get them all at once. <laughs> what service is this? Which one do you want it to be? All, all of our, like, church calendar brothers and sisters are losing <laughs> their minds right now. Gosh. Merry Christmas to you. And then we have the Assumption of Mary and yeah. then all that. No, I no. just, speaking of, like, you know, our, our Anglican friends, you know, like, I'm just glad that after tomorrow Christmas is done. It's just over. <laughs> now you're making me mad. I know. <laughs> I, is there a chance Marcus is listening right now? His ears, it's like that cartoon his, where, yeah. his, where steam's coming he's, out of his head. swerving <laughs> off the road, driving back to the station. All right, anyway, so I, I saw a bunch of people post this, and I'll be honest, um, I didn't expect... The tone when I watch it, it's a uh, it's a commercial for WK about Santa rethinking his naughty or nice. And it's just one static shot. It's a guy playing Santa. It's not the real Santa. (laughs) It's a guy playing Santa on top of a roof and there's no other characters. It's just this like monologue. And the the tone was very odd, very surprising, at least. It wasn't what I was expecting. But you listen to it, though, and it makes um I thought some really interesting observations and I thought, you know, it being Christmas Eve and at this point, you know, most of our planning and organizing and wrapping right. is all kind of done, but it, it, uh, it just sort of hit me in a strange way. And so I want to just listen to it and I don't know if you've seen it or heard it yet. I haven't. So I, I want you just to listen to it and then, uh, and then we'll react to it. I think I did this all wrong. It started with good intentions way to motivate behavior to codify gift giving streamline deliveries but <laughs> naughty or nice as if some kids don't have enough to worry about only to have me judge them without context without perspective without any sort of doctorate in psychology honorary or otherwise reducing these growing varied intricate beings to some binary code of this or that Naughty or nice. Did I condemn every kid who already felt like a misfit toy? Maybe there's something else. Something I missed. Naughty or nice. Isn't it just as possible that they're nervous or nice? Uncomfortable in their own skin or nice. Uh, I'm angry and I don't know why or nice. My, my impulses are beyond my control. Or nice. Hurting or nice. And who can blame them? With the news, the lockdown drills, the internet... The world is bearing down on them, and we expect these struggling kids to just, what, speak when spoken to? What if, with little understanding, a little perspective, it's just, it's interesting or nice? I mean, show me an interesting, fully formed person, and I'll show you a once difficult child. only taken me a thousand years, but I think I finally see it. These kids, they're not naughty or nice. They're kids. 
I know. I know. Going. We're going. All right, so man, hearing that for the first time. I know that's heavy, and you know we have Christmas Eve services, and we're going to talk about obviously, right? Jesus Christ Mm -hmm. incarnate come to Mary and Joseph, and what that means for the world. But I thought, what an interesting take on the weight that so many of our kids are feeling this Christmas season. When I, I I would say this is one reason I enjoy doing this show because after hearing that, I'm like, man, that's powerful. That makes a great point. When I first read this, I'm like, come on, really? It's kind of ridiculous. Like, yeah, I get it in concept, but you're like, you know, it's, it felt over the top to me. Like, okay, Mm. this is how we talk sometimes, you know, like you're, you're on the naughty list, the nice list, or parents right. speak of this sometimes. Like sometimes it feels like we're over analyzing everything. But mm-hmm. then when I heard that, I'm like, no, he makes a good point. No kidding. Yeah, yeah. So I think I've I've made some movement on that. Doesn't mean I think we need to throw it all out. I think for me, sure. you know, this isn't going to be a crusade to get rid of the naughty list or the like that language. Right, but right, it's right. going to be, hey, that's something worth thinking about. Not every kid is so black and white that sometimes there's there's factors behind behavior yeah. uh, that we talk about often that I think are important to think about. And, uh, yeah, no, uh, not to mention that was a very powerfully, uh, I, well, I only heard the audio, obviously didn't see it. Right. Uh, but very powerfully done. Well, and I thought in particular too, and I, again, I don't want to spend Christmas Eve just talking about Santa cause that's clearly not the point of yep. any of this. Right. So for us, you know, we're having services with our churches and we're talking about how, how God stepped down from eternity and entered into humanity, you know, and we read a quote a couple of weeks ago from Max Lucado who said, Man, at the Nativity, we celebrate that God put on eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen, right? Mm. And that the hands that first held them weren't manicured. They were calloused and dirty, right? And the angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. Like the idea that God entered into sin-soaked humanity to be Emmanuel, not just God near us, but God with us. And I thought, man, what a reminder, even this, you know, commercial that isn't speaking of Jesus or salvation or incarnation or all, still... This idea that, man, we're, we're with you. The withness of Christmas, I think, is like such an important thing, such an important reminder on mm. this Christmas Eve about, I don't know, amidst all the hustle and bustle, about what really matters. Yeah, and I think it's a, just an important reminder of uh, not just what really matters right now, but also uh, something that you've done a good job highlighting for me is just, you know, the complexity of what's going on mentally for people, even kids. Yeah. Uh, that not every kid who throws a tantrum is a disrespectful child. That's right. Uh, And I think that's what this was trying to get at. And I think it's a worthwhile thing to think about, even if you're one of those people who's like, come on, when I was a kid. Yeah, I get it. I do. I get that. I get that. But I still think it's worth being challenged and worth thinking about. Yep, 100%, man. Well, uh, from all of us here at The Common Good, Merry Christmas Merry Christmas, everyone. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Soraya Lewis is a food for the poor employee in our Haitian office in Port-au-Prince. Soraya, there's not a lot of news coverage about what's happening in Haiti at the present moment. Can you give us a firsthand account of what's going on, what the situation is? What's going on right now is that there's just a lot of turmoil and it's affected the lives of Haitians everywhere around the country. There's a food shortage, a lot of insecurity. And it's just very chaotic to live in Haiti right now. Life for the average Haitian family has been just uncertain because waking up on a daily and not knowing if you're going to be able to put food on the table is just the worst feeling. And it's it's constant uncertainty because we don't know when things are going to get better. 
we don't really know where to turn uh, to just have more peace of mind. So extreme uh, lack of food because of the drought, crops aren't growing, livestock is dying, food prices just unreachable. Most people can't afford to feed their family. I know the water situation is also a huge concern. Talk a little bit about that. About a month ago, I was in Cognillon, where Food for the Poor intervened rapidly because it was a water crisis there. It was painful to watch, really. People just lining up the entire day, just waiting to find water. What they did was they had water trucks um, responding to the emergency. So the truck would go by through the city the entire day and stop at various points to distribute water. But it just felt like their lives just revolved around the idea of being able to find water. That's, that's all they did. That's not normal. It was like nothing I've seen before. Again, that translates what a lot of Haitian families are going through, not just about water, but also about food, also about basic health, just not being able to go to a hospital because hospitals are closed, because doctors are not getting paid, and they refuse to go in because they're not able to support their families themselves. People are waking up every day and not being able to meet their basic needs. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and uh, we are excited again to be joined by Todd Chapman. Todd is uh, from Food for the Poor, and that story you heard there was trying to paint the picture of the humanitarian crisis uh, going on in the nation of Haiti. So first of all, Todd, thank you so much for uh, joining us again today. Hey, thanks, guys. Always love to be with you. Absolutely. Uh, That was just powerful to hear. Can you talk about what Food for the Poor, especially for those who haven't heard uh, heard us talk about it yet, uh, what is Food for the Poor doing? What is the opportunity that people have to make a difference in the nation of Haiti? Yeah, sure. So, uh, first of all, a little uh, background on Food for the Poor, uh, because I never want to assume that uh, any of our listeners have heard of Food for the Poor, even though we are one of the largest international relief and development organizations in the United States, right. uh, 38 years old, uh, and uh, have been in, in Haiti, actually, for more than 30 years, working hand-in-hand with the local church. But a lot of people haven't heard from uh, Food for the Poor and don't really realize the scope of all the work that God does through Food for the Poor, frankly, because we just don't spend a lot of money uh, you know, advertising uh, across the country. Instead, we choose to give that money to the poor uh, and make a, a difference in the developing world. And so maybe you've never heard of Food for the Poor, although I'm pretty confident if you've listened to uh, 1160 Hope for any length of time uh, over the last few years, you've probably from time to time uh, heard about or maybe even been a part of our, our many partnerships uh, with uh, with the station. And uh, But basically, Food for the Poor are... are, are Foundational verses, Matthew 25, uh, 34, where basically Jesus said, you know, when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. And uh, so, uh, you know, for 38 years now, we have just partnered with uh, the church in countries like Haiti and Guatemala, about 18 countries around the world now. And uh, we have uh, just sought to minister to the abject poor, people that are trying to survive in some of the poorest countries in the world. And they're trying to live on maybe a dollar, two dollars a day. 
And uh, the only way that uh, we've actually been able to, to make a difference is, is just because of the generosity of people like our listeners, people like you that have, uh, you know, you hear about the need and you choose to give a gift of uh, $100 or $200 or 500 or $27 a month, whatever God lays on your heart. And uh, with your generous gifts, we're able to work with local churches, local pastors, and turn your gifts into food, into clean, safe drinking water. We've built uh, thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of homes uh, across 38 years, uh, which is another huge need uh, in in these countries. And, you know, in short, this is an opportunity for you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And in this case, guys, in Haiti, which is the poorest country in this side of the world and going through a really, really hard time right now with uh, this food crisis. All right, so the number to call right now is 855-901-4673. That's 855-901-4673. Or you can go to 1160hope.com, click the Haiti Humanitarian Crisis there at the top. And uh, here's the ask. $320, a one-time gift, which breaks down to about $27 a month, provides food for a year and water for life for one family. Maybe you're thinking... And we can do way more than that. Maybe it's a small group. Maybe it's a business. Maybe it's a couple of families in your block. But we are really, really calling on our common good family uh, to care for these other families. And I'm wondering, in just a couple of minutes, Todd, could you tell us a bit about what it's like to sort of be on the ground to see some of what you're talking about? Yeah, so I've been to Haiti uh, more than a dozen times in my nearly 10 years with Food for the Poor, and it's it really is just gut-wrenching poverty. Uh, I, I mean, and I've traveled to a number of uh, third-world countries, but Haiti's uh, worse than anything I've ever seen and, and actually getting worse now than it uh, has over the last been in the last 10 years or so. Uh, as a matter of fact, many experts have said that uh, things in Haiti now are worse than they were in the wake of the, the earthquake of 2010. Oh, and wow. That was a bad seen then but and you know it's um it's it's pretty staggering you as you drive around uh whether it be the streets of port-au-prince or out into the countryside you see people uh, desperately doing anything they can to just survive another day Mm. and so like in port-au-prince in particular it's this beehive of activity i mean it's a city of about four million people and the streets are just jam-packed with people carrying stuff and they've got their little roadside stands set up and they're trying to sell stuff. I mean, everything from baggies of water to fruit to furniture to, uh, you know, uh, little containers of like Gatorade sized containers of gas. I mean, you name it, everybody's got this hustle going on. Mm. But I can't, you know, every time I'm there, I'm just like, man, this is just an, an exercise in futility because everybody's working so hard, but nobody's getting ahead. Mm. They're just trying to survive day to day. And then if you go into a home of, uh, you know, just pretty much anybody in that country, because 90% of this country of 11 million people literally uh, lives in, on less than $2 a day. And so it's the same story, uh, you know, whether in the city or outside the city. If you go into the, the house of a typical poor person there, um, it's always the same thing. A lot of kids, never enough food. Uh, they live in little ramshackle huts uh, that are not fit for, you know, human uh, occupation. And oftentimes they're sleeping on the ground or maybe the whole family sleeping on a little mattress. They never have enough food to eat. Work is nearly impossible to find. And so it is an absolutely desperate situation. And honestly, guys, it's it's hard not to just, you know, throw up your hands and say, well, Mm -hmm. this is hopeless. You know, how's this ever going to get any better? But we can't. We can't do that, right? We can't do that for a couple of reasons. Number one, because we always have hope in Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, absent that, Haiti would be a very, very hopeless situation. But 
across 38 uh, years of working in, in 18 countries and 30 of those years in Haiti, we have seen a difference uh, that you can make as a donor to Food for the Poor. Uh, one family at a time, one person at a time. And so that's why we're coming to you today and just saying, you know what, don't don't get focused on the big problem. Focus on the difference you can make mm-hmm. for one person, for one mom, for one family. And when you consider the fact that for less than a dollar a day, you can lift a family right now that literally is is in a situation where they're not eating on a daily basis, you can solve that problem for them if you just would see it in your heart to make a commitment of $27 a month. And that's what we're asking you to do mm-hmm. right now. And, guys, I'm real excited because when we started uh, this campaign earlier this month, we had about 30-some families that we had kind of uh, earmarked for the uh, 1160 Hope family. And we're down to 10 families now. So nice. we are almost done with this. And I believe that we could wrap this up in just a, a real short amount of time. It would only take just a few people saying, you know what, I've heard you talking about it. It's a busy time of year. And I'm sorry I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to do it right now. So call 855-901-4673. 855-901-4673. We're asking, would you prayerfully consider making a commitment of $27 a month for the next 12 months? And with that, we're going to be able to feed a family, give them clean, safe drinking water for life. Absolutely. You can also go to 1160hope.com. That other voice you hear is Todd Chapman. He is with Food for the Poor. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. I mentioned before the break, uh, our friend Dan Frio. And if you're listening, you're like, where does that name sound familiar? 1160 Mortgage. See, now they're not going to know the website. (laughs) Do it again. Sorry. (laughs) I want Dan to get all the business in the world. Oh, do you? I do. Okay. 1160mortgage.com. We talk with him weekly about ways that people can get a better understanding yeah. of their mortgage or maybe getting a better mortgage if you have any credit questions uh, 1160mortgage.com can't encourage you enough he didn't i mean he didn't even ask us to do Honestly, any of that just from those conversations and again uh, i know he advertises here but that's not what this is he just from having those conversations i feel like i'm even learning some stuff i didn't know like okay next time i get a mortgage i'm calling that guy or well and anecdotally so, he's just a good he is he's a, a good, good dude and yeah. he he posted something on facebook uh 2 days ago it's an image. It just says the difference between a boss and a leader. So as boss on one side, leader on the other and aligned on the middle. I'm just going to read through all of them. And then I want to kind of get some of your uh, reactions because we've talked. I think even last week that sometimes we typecast. We get this one dimensional version of what a leader is supposed to look like. Yeah. And I think this has I'd just be really curious to know some of your thoughts. So uh, it says a boss demands a leader coaches. A boss relies on authority. A leader relies on goodwill. A boss uh, issues ultimatums. A leader generates enthusiasm. A boss says I. A leader says we. A boss uses people. A leader develops people. A boss takes credit. A leader gives credit. Mm. A boss places the blame. A leader accepts blame. A boss says go. A leader says let's go. A boss says my way is the only way. And a leader says strength in unity. Mm. What do you think? I think it's great. You know, probably like any Facebook. Is this a meme? Facebook meme? Is this going to fall under meme category? I don't know that that matters. Okay. I'm still trying to learn, though, so I have to keep I know, asking. I know. Modest so, mouse. I would say uh, that's a great question. And so I would say that uh, like any Facebook meme, there's probably this is probably a little too black and white. 
but you can't really allow for nuance in a two-columned meme. I mean, it's also literally black and white. <laughs> With a line in the middle. <laughs> uh, but, and it's also clearly set up as obviously the leader is the preference and the boss. Like, that's not what we want to be. Uh, and so the, what I read there of the leader, that is what I want to be. You and I both lead people. Like, that's what I want to be. I want to develop people and generate enthusiasm and coach people. Um, but what also struck me, and I would love to see if you agree about this. Like sometimes you got to be the boss. Hmm. Like, I don't know that this is so clearly one or the other, or maybe I'm wrong on that, but sometimes, you know, authority is, I also thought of this in terms of parenting. Okay. Like these, these seem like categories of two different ways of parenting as well, which they may or may not be. There might be more nuance to that, but take that first though. Do you think that sometimes when you lead people, you have to lead them like a boss or is it, or is it always, we always want to go on this leader track here. Which of the boss characteristics do you think sometimes are necessary? Probably, uh, maybe that they're not worded this way, but sometimes being demanding or sometimes with certain people, you do need to use authority at times, right? Um, I don't, I don't want to use the uses people or always takes credit. Like those are, those I don't think are ever necessary, but sometimes, uh, I don't know when it says issues, ultimatums, can that, can another way of saying that be, um, sets deadlines, (laughs) you know? And so I guess my, my, my point is I love the leader one. Like that's who I want to be. Someone who coaches and relies on goodwill and generates enthusiasm sometimes what I lack is some of the harder edge of the boss things. And Mm. I think it's, it's hurt me at times. I think I've had people take advantage of my leadership style. How so? Tell tell me more about that. I could probably use just a little bit more of the boss in here, right? But like which parts, this is what I want to get after. Cause I've heard you allude to this a couple of times. Like, Oh, I think I I could use a little more of this flavor in my leadership. You mentioned being taken advantage of. It makes me think of the, the Ian Stone story from last week. Like, Hey, you don't have to, apologize for having a life. I trust you and your yeah. like, wh- what do you think personally, Brian Fromm, that you're, you're missing in terms of leadership approach? I should say that I have missed and it, a lot of it depends on the people you're leading. I think I've led, I've had some people on my staff before um, that could you, that needed to be handled a lot more uh, directly and, that when I spoke in terms of team and let's collaborate together and let's do this, they kind of took advantage of it. Hmm. Uh, and, and there were times where I needed to be able to step in and be like, no, this is how it's going to be right now. See, and I don't think that position, though, I don't think saying this is how it's going to be yep. doesn't fit any of these leader categories. I agree. I agree. And so, uh, yeah, maybe I'm wrong. Sometimes there's a, just I think the leader one on this is like that's who I want to be. Like that is right. I just wonder if every now and then there's there's some from this boss list that if you sprinkle them in a little bit, it might be a little helpful. But maybe like not. like which one? I don't know. Uh, the I think uh, maybe I'm just maybe I'm just reflecting on the things that I don't think that I necessarily have in me. That's what it feels like. And so it's just like the days where you drive the drive the boat here sometimes turns into my counseling session. <laughs> Uh, I'm charging you for this, by the way. So, uh, <laughs> Get my bill tomorrow. Dan, Dan Friel, Pat. Uh, and so sometimes I just could probably use just a, a little bit, a little dash of authority at times or a little. Well, I think there's a, okay, this is maybe a whole other conversation. I think there is a difference between authoritative and authoritarian. True. Right? I think authoritative 
still cares about and develops people. I think authoritarian is where you get into the dangers of, of using people to accomplish things and their people are expendable and blah, 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 blah. But I'm looking at all these, like when you talk about being hands-on or a little more direct, I think every one of those leader category column characteristics could still certainly include like some, sometimes final decision maker power, like developing people versus using people. I think you can be very direct and set boundaries and set timelines and deadlines. And I don't, I I think part of the problem is we read some of these like coaches, like you've played sports before, right? I think so often in in leadership context, coach feels so passive. I'm like, none of the coaches I had were like, Hey, run however you want. Run whatever play you can. Kick to either goal. Like, Sometimes in like the leadership world, coach feels so beta male or something. It feels like so yeah. passive, but I'm like, in in actuality, that's not been my experience with any coach I've ever yeah. had. So why do we why do we feel like oh the coaching side is like a little soft leadership and it's yeah. not it's not really as in your face? And I'm like, I all the coaches I had were actually very in my face, but it was just how they did it and the relational equity and buy-in that we as a team had with them. I think, I mean, you said it a couple of times, the leader one is the one I want to be in. Yes. I just don't know that I always am. I think that's part of the problem. Most people will look at this list because it's a little bit of a straw man setup, right? Like clearly one of these columns is better. Most of us who are to any degree self-aware are going to say, Oh, I want to be the leader, but then you actually put us back in our leadership context, whether that's a church or a business or in your home and we can revert to some of these negative ones. Yeah. I don't think it's enough to just want to be the leader in this category, but to actually make steps towards, okay, what are the ways that I do tend to say I instead of we, or I take credit when I shouldn't, or when I place the blame, or when it's my way is the only way. Like, even just listing those right now, I can think of a bunch of really embarrassing examples in the last month where yeah. I've done all of those things. Like, that's not, I don't want to be that. But the goal, I think, to hold this up and say, all right, I can see how I'm doing this in my own life. And I'm, and I can see that that maybe isn't the most helpful way to go. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, everything you say there is correct. Uh, I think from that that Ian Sohn thing that we did. By the way, how cool that Ian Sohn, who we discussed his blog post the other day, commented on it on our Twitter. Oh, good that name, was really good cool. name drop. It really was. I was really excited <laughs> about that this weekend. And so uh, I think both those leadership conversations you and I had. It's very interesting that my bent, my one fear ends up being. Uh, if you're too much of this, you can get taken advantage of. And yeah. that's because I think I have been too much of this and gotten taken advantage yeah, that's of. Right. And which is more says something about more my leadership style than whether these are right or wrong. And so, um, but no, I, I love these. Hey, I'd also encourage everyone to go to Dan Frio on Facebook and that wouldn't be really fun. F R I O. And just, <laughs> Hey, you want to see this? It's on his site. So just friend him. You'll love him. Let's all, all sorts of people out there. Friend Dan Frio. D A N F R I O or 1160 mortgage. Dot com. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Product placement. All right, man. Coming up next, you're going to love this story. A former sponsored child is now the Archbishop of Kenya's Anglican Church. I, can't, I cannot wait to talk about this story coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com. And I mentioned uh, just a little bit ago this story. It's actually uh, it's about a year and a half old, but it's from World Vision. And the headline so intrigued me. It says, Former Sponsored Child is Now Archbishop of Kenya's Anglican Church. That's awesome. And I was, I was combing the story to like kind of just give you some of the bulleted items, but it's so good 
Uh, if you'll let me, I just want to read some of it. Is that all right? Yeah, go for it. I'm going to do it anyway. So yeah, I know uh, you were. <laughs> here we go. It says. Uh, To understand this remarkable story, first, you need to know a little bit about the Maasai. For centuries, the Maasai traveled with their cattle along the Great Rift Valley in Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, Nope, Tanzania. Tanza? Tanzania. Yeah. Families were polygamous. No, no, that's Tanzania. That's Tanzania. What did I say? Tanzania? (laughs) (laughs) Shall we begin again? No. (laughs) Uh, Families were polygamous. Men had many wives and kids. Children rarely went to school, instead helping their parents take care of animals and doing chores around the house. This is the world into which Jackson Ole Sapit, 53, was born with one father and 11 mothers. He's not sure how many siblings he has, but guesses more than 50. Jackson's father died when he was young, and his mother, his father's seventh wife, and her three children were chased away from the family home uh, by shrewd older brothers who understood the value of land. Jackson's mother and her children became destitute. Maasai parents uh, didn't believe in education as boys were to herd cows and girls worked around the house. But in 1973, Jackson and the other Maasai boys in his village were forced to attend. There he began to hear about Jesus. Mm. One of the songs they sang, he said, was more about Jesus. But he thought they were singing moo instead of more. And he said, I wondered, are they singing about cows? <laughs> this was something that he could relate to as a herder, and his curiosity was piqued. Um, the next year, Jackson became sponsored through World Vision. Through sponsorship, Jackson received his first pair of shoes along with shoe polish to keep them shiny. He loved the smell of the polish so much that he slept with it. He received all the benefits of sponsorship, including medical checkups and then world vision saved his family's life and i want you to hear straight from his mouth a little bit of what he has to say about that if my sponsor was to walk today through this door i really don't know how i'm going to react probably tears will be shedding i'll request politely for a hug and you know that was an opening point that enabled me now to become the person i am today as the bishop of the Anglican church of kenya making an impact in other people's lives it would not have been possible Mm. if it were not for that person and family and forever i'm grateful to them i mean how incredible is that story it's crazy and you know uh i think like at our church we do a lot of child sponsorship stuff through africa new life in rwanda and you you tell the stories of you know, we've even brought kids over who who went through the Rwandan school system being being supported. And then they are in America going to college. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, when you actually see the flesh and bone results of this kind of uh, giving by people, uh, you know, and, and this one, I mean, you've got a kid that was not going to make it. I mean, that might be overdramatic, but like his life was going in one way. World Vision steps in. Somebody clearly sponsors him, and now he's the Archbishop of Kenyan's Anglican Church. Yeah. Like, what a great testimony to the power of not just generosity, but, like, you know, the fruit of of the work of people like World Vision and Africa New Life or Food for the Poor, Cross International, people that we deal with here. It's just a crazy, it's just a heartwarming and unbelievable story. So what, what, do, we, what do we do with this here and now in Chicagoland? Like, it's one thing to say... Like, honestly, we, you know, we were just uh, we were talking for the last couple of weeks about food for the poor and yeah. like quite literally saving families in Haiti. And as best I can tell, you can still give. Like we would yep. still I mean, you can go to the website right now. The image is right they there. Don't stop right? taking the they, money. Exactly. No. But I, like I love partnering with organizations like that because it's like, oh, man, it's so easy to go throughout your day, your week, your month without ever without ever thinking like the, the massive need globally. But what what this story does for me is. So often when we see, you know, commercials or whatever, it's like, oh, you're, you're saving this child, this six-year-old. Yeah. What we don't often think about is like that six-year-old might become 
an archbishop of Kenya. Like yeah. there, you know what I mean? There, there is something about this, this, this gift of seeing human potential in others that shouldn't just happen when it comes to sponsorship, right? Nope. Like when we talk about, you know, the, the person begging on the corner that yep. we've made up our minds about, right? We were talking a little bit earlier about kind of judging a book by its cover. What, what if we, what would that change in our daily interactions if we actually saw people with the deep sacred Imago Dei, mm. the sacred humanity that they have, but also like, wow, this person might actually, what if they, you know, what if they grew up to become this or they developed to become that? And I think it's, it's why I think we have so much fun like looking at celebrities photos before they were famous yeah. or, but you know, we kind of like laugh at like who would have ever guessed. I'm like, but that's how all these stories are. Anyone who's famous now has a goofy past and yeah. they were an uncomfortable junior hire. And yet we still keep making fun of junior hires. Like that might be the next, whatever. Yeah. Like why, why is this lesson so hard for us to learn? Like, Hey, we need to care for people wherever we're at, not just because they, they could grow up to become this, but because every person matters. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it reminds me, uh, a month or two ago, I took my daughter, my oldest daughter, Madeline, to go see. Uh, we went to South Bend, Indiana to see Les Mis. Yeah. Because it was traveling. I love that musical, by the way. And uh, one of the beginning scenes of Les Mis, right, is when, I don't know, is he a priest or a bishop? I forget exactly what he was. But when uh, when Jean Valjean steals the, the silver right. from the guy's house. And if the guy, like, just confirms that, yeah, he stole it, they would have... Uh, he John Valjean would have been in prison for the rest of his life. Right. Right. And instead he said, oh, I have more for him. And he made it seem like he was giving all of it to him. And he basically told John Valjean, like, go live up to this gift. Like, this is what it in some ways, how we're supposed to live our Christian lives, live up in in, in light of the grace that uh, that we have been shown by Jesus in our own lives. And man, it's a great reminder, like. You know, just by supporting a six-year-old, you're you're 100 percent right. You might not just be saving a six-year-old, but you might be you might be empowering and saving the person who is going to ultimately like change the the, the country or change whatever or invent something. Who knows what they're going to do? And, and that's a crazy reminder. Like this person who sponsored this boy way back when wasn't like, well, can't wait till he becomes the Archbishop of Kenya of the Anglican Church, right? Yeah, right. But instead, did it out of the goodness of their heart and and to to do even their small part in bringing about some change, and then it it, it blossomed into this. So you're right to link it to our earlier conversation about not judging a book by its cover, and you know, it's it's yeah, the importance of uh, of kind of reaching down, and I don't mean down to people less than you, but people who have less than you who. Uh, th- that kind of a hand down to to bring somebody else up. You have no idea what that might do. And that could be financial and it could be supporting kid in Africa. It could be the guy in the corner that you're talking about, or it could be the kid that gets picked on at school. You know, it could be any of those, but when we empower other people and support other people, we don't know what God's going to do with that gift in that person's life. And I do think we, we need to be really careful though. And, and you touched on a little bit, about the words that we use, even reaching down. Sure. That's why I, I tried I, to preface it. Yep. I think that that, I think we gotta be, cause there is a, and there's a, a great book called toxic charity that actually kind of opened my eyes to a lot of the ways that we, with the best of intentions do things that actually sometimes are, are much more hurtful sure. or perpetuate systems of exploitation. And, and even thinking about as a culture, how we, you know, I think of the movie blindside, right? Like we create mm. movies where, Oh, because this person became something great, it makes this initial like, that can there is a there's a subtle danger there though that if we ever only start loving people because of what they could become even if like w- would we care for this person even if they never get clean right even if they never get employed it, mm-hmm. like 
does the call to love others still stand even if we never quote unquote see the payout you know like i think those that's some of the dangers for me in seeing and i think the story is fantastic and it does kind of highlight a lot of like what we don't know about what people what god is doing in anyone's life but there always is like a flip to that for me like to be mindful that there there never is this sense of superiority like hey let me in all my wealth and blessing Mm. like step in and kind of save you here like just say hey what we're there's this brokenness that we all share and i believe that you bear the image of a creative god that loves you and sees you and i think to keep that in the forefront without creating any kind of you know hierarchy of services is so important but like so so difficult to do yeah that's why it's good to link with places like world vision or african new life or other play cross international or food for the poor it's good to link with these and, uh, yeah, do what you can. You've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link. And it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began, because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common, our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, but Brian Fromm did have to duck out. But good news, you can still find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good wherever it is you get your podcast. If that is you, uh, thank you for podcasting. Why don't you share that with a friend or an enemy? Share it with an enemy and start a discussion. That could be fun. Um, But in Brian's absence, I have to tell you, uh, I am absolutely thrilled, so excited to have in the studio my good friend, Dr. Wright Reverend, John Armstrong, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Ian. <laughs> Dr. Wright Reverend, is that the official? I haven't had those titles in years. <laughs> I was trying to think of other synonyms, but I just uh, I just drew a blank. I'll be giving them throughout the show. I, I had some flooring done in my house recently, and the two guys that were doing the work are Romanian. Oh, okay. And the lead guy said to me, God bless you. And I said, you a Christian? He said, yeah. I said, you Orthodox? He said, no, evangelical. I said, what, Baptist? He said, yeah, evangelical Baptist. I said, Wonderful. And then he started asking me about me, and I started telling him who I was and what I did. And he, yeah. he'd, he'd been moving stuff around in my house, and he'd seen these plaques and these books. Right, and he right. Said, oh, he said, you've written all these books? I said, yeah. he got all these plaques on the wall and all this stuff. He said, what'd you do? Well, I told him a little bit, and he said, so what do I call you? Reverend, doctor, pastor, <laughs> author? I said, you know what, Claudio? Call me brother. Oh, I love that. And I said, hey, if brother Roger can found Tizay, yeah, then brother John is all right. I love, I love that. <laughs> well, that's a great segue, too, because I do want to make sure cards on the table. 
there are very few people in my life that I have called and referred to as a mentor, and you are one of them. And for you and I, and we'll probably get into this later, it was almost inevitable. Like, I think the first time, I think somebody else actually said the two of you need to be friends, yeah, and they sort of teed it up for us. Yeah, so maybe we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But what I do like having guests do, especially if people aren't familiar with who they are, is to introduce themselves. So to an audience maybe that doesn't know who you are, how would, how would you, Dr. Reverend Pastor Brother John Armstrong, <laughs> introduce yourself to people? Short and to the point. Um, <laughs> I'll give you. I'll give you just just the facts. All right, I'll take it, and then we'll go from there. <laughs> just the facts. Um, I was born in 1949, so you can quickly calculate that I'm 70. Um, I grew you overestimate up, my calculation okay, speed. <laughs> well, I grew up in the Deep South um, in the pre-civil rights era um, in a Christian home, a very committed, faithful Christian home. Hmm. Uh, in a white segregated church where in the 1950s, I was the precocious little kid saying, where are the black people? Mm. Shut up, kid. Don't ask those questions. This is the way God ordained it. Mm. Oh, OK. Thank you. <laughs> so um, lo and behold, I finished uh, my high school education at a military academy and I went to the University of Alabama shortly after George Wallace blocked the door and said segregation now, segregation forever. Wow. And uh those were very, very full couple years. I remember standing there in 1968 on April 4th when I heard that Dr. King had been killed. My life was being turned inside out by mm. the racial animus, by the tension, by the background, by having a sense of what I would now call the prophetic. Not the prophetic in that I always saw things in advance, but I mm. saw things and felt I had to speak about them. Mm. Sometimes in my own spirit, in my own flesh, in my own ego – but often, I think in the spirit of God, I would say, something's not right here. Something's yeah. fishy in Denmark. We ought to talk about this. Hmm. We ought to deal with this. This is wrong. This is not right. Hmm. So those, that was my, those were my formative experiences. So with that background, I knew in my sophomore year in college that I was called to the ministry and uh, felt that I needed more formal education for that purpose. Had never visited Chicago. I visited Chicago as a 12-year-old boy. Uh, I had never been on the campus of Wheaton College, but I had read through Gates of Splendor the story of the missionary yes. martyrs from Wheaton. Yes. And people say, did you go to Wheaton because of Billy Graham? No, I like Billy Graham, but he had nothing to do with my going to Wheaton. It was those missionary martyrs that made me think Wheaton might be a cool place to get a good no education. Kidding. So I applied. I was accepted. A whole other long story. Came to Wheaton, and I've been in the Chicago area ever since. No kidding. Uh, two degrees from Wheaton. Uh, pastored a church in Bolingbrook in the 19, early 1970s. Church in Wheaton in the 70s and 80s, and in 1992, formed an international ministry that you were a part of, mm -hmm. uh, eventually called Act 3 Network. And uh, the basic call of that ministry was to bring Christian leaders and others together around a common call to do the mission of Christ in unity with all Christians, yes. Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, progressive, conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing, Bible-doubting, whatever. Yeah, yes, I mean, it's like, yes. let's get the family talking again. Mm -hmm. Let's get Christians loving one another again. Hey, there's a radical idea here, John 13, 34, that you love one another as I've loved you. <laughs> this is my new commandment. Like, mm -hmm. wow, what if we actually did that? Right. So <laughs> what it a captured, novel idea. Yeah, a novel idea. It captured, as you know, it captured my mind, my heart, my passion, and all this background the last 30 years got tossed into that one calling of mm -hmm. John 13, 34. How do I do this? How do I share this? How do I mentor this? How do I preach this? How do I write this? Yeah. So that's what makes me tick. 
So I love that was a really, really good introduction, by the way, because there's pieces of that that I didn't even know. And the fancy word for what it is that you've dedicated your life to now is ecumenism, right? It is this pursuit. I call it missional hyphen ecumenism. I love it. Because it's the kingdom of God is the good news of the mission. But the mission can't be accomplished, John 17, 21. Jesus says, Mm. unless we love one another, and that love means unless we have unity with one another. doesn't mean union. doesn't mean agreement. Right. we got to get over this business of we all got to be in the same church, or we all got to agree on baptism or predestination or or all of this stuff we debate. We don't have to agree. We have to agree that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is our Savior. That's right. We can follow him together. And pursue unity in the midst of diversity. Absolutely. But we don't understand that because we haven't lived it in the American church for most of our 400 years of history. That's right. And I, so I, it's a perfect example because right over your shoulder, I see our producer and he's like fist pumping in the air. <laughs> I think everyone that's hearing what you just said is maybe feeling the same way. Why is it so difficult? Well, I think I think the fact that he's pumping his fist in the air and, and, and you're positive <laughs> says you're of a generation that's just mm. had enough of it. Mm. Generally speaking, uh, your generation and those younger than you that are the next generation coming, they look at me and say, what's the big deal? Why don't you people get over this? Why can't you at least sit in the same room and talk to each right, other? Right. Sure, you disagree. We disagree, but we don't walk out of the room. You always walk out, Interesting. Being, meaning my generation. So I think there is a generational split here. Hmm. And this is one of those areas where I, I don't have a lot of hope for my generation. Uh, my hope for your generation and those that are coming behind you is, is, is exactly here. You're willing to stay in the room. You're willing to keep learning. You're willing to keep processing friendship yes. without walking out on one another. Now, there are other things you don't have that I hope I can contribute as an old guy. Hmm. To what's coming. But I think you have what we did not have, which is an openness to the church looking very differently. And I don't mean different music or different forms or different kind of stuff up on the stage or whatever we call it up there. (laughs) I mean, I'm talking about real significant life changing difference. Yes. Those are just forms. The forms will come and go That's not the critical thing. But we spent a whole generation, my generation, preaching and leading with the forms and saying this is the new thing. That's fascinating. Well, the new thing's now old. So yeah, how, right. about, how about we actually get back to the most basic things? Well, and that actually is, in a lot of ways, the heartbeat for this show, the common good. We really anchored in on that word common, that in an era where we just seem to be yelling from our echo chambers louder and louder. And I remember one of the gatherings at Mundelein, somebody had made a comment that where we can't have doctrinal ecumenism, we can't have relational ecumenism. Yes. And I remember... Really seeing you in that moment as, wow, in a lot of ways, the relational component is John Armstrong. He he is the one, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who has brought these people together for this conversation. So I, I'm personally thrilled that you're going to stick around for the whole hour. Next segment, we're going to talk a little bit more about missional ecumenism, where you see it's really at work, but where maybe you see some of the struggles and the blind spots. And that is coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is MIA. If you've seen him, let us know. We're very concerned. But you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, on Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can call us on your telephone if you want, 312-660-2594. But I, I am always so excited to have guests, but extra excited for this very special full hour guest, Dr. John Armstrong, friend, mentor, brother, all around. I mean, you're probably going to get a sense of this. Just one of the smartest dudes that I know. I remember the first time that we got lunch together. I'm sure it was Chick-fil-A. That's where we always go. <laughs> and I remember 
about 10 or 15 minutes into the conversation feeling in my gut, like, I don't want to speak anymore. I just want to listen to him. <laughs> like it, you were giving language, honestly, truly, this was such a, I don't know that I've ever told you this. I, I had this like burning desire for unity and had never heard the word ecumenism before. And maybe that's why someone teed up for us to be friends. And I remember the first 10 minutes, you started talking about your life's passion. And I remember thinking, oh, there's language for this. Someone's doing the work of this. And I'd love to know before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, where do you think that comes from? That like, it's so clear. That's what drives you. That's what makes your heart beat fast. Where, where did that come from? And, and maybe what are some ways forward when it comes to missional ecumenism? Well, for me, it comes, it, it comes out of life, out of doing and living life. Mm. Um, my call to this missional ecumenism was uh, pretty passionate, pretty, pretty God intoxicated, pretty, pretty supernatural mm. is a simple way to put it. Um, I was um, a featured speaker in uh, the world of, of a fairly popular um, aggressive teaching reformed Christianity. Um, and I was one of the voices on the platform with some who are still living, some who are deceased mm. names. If I started dropping names, listeners would at least know the names. Mm. Um, so I was, that was my crowd and I was to speak at a conference and, uh, you can actually see a sermon in which I tell this story on my website, but I was to speak at a conference in Philadelphia at a famous church. Uh, and I grew up in a home where my mother listened to Christian radio in the 1950s, and one of her heroes was a man named Donald Gray Barnhouse. Mm. And Dr. Barnhouse was a systematic Bible teacher, uh, nationally well-known. And so I was to preach in his pulpit at 10th Presbyterian Philadelphia, and I had a sermon, and I was about to get up and speak, and I had a a vision. Wow. I don't know what to call it. I'm, I don't fit the category of people who have visions. So mm. it was like, what is that? <laughs> I mean, I didn't have any definition for it, but right. what is happening? <laughs> and I say that not to, to draw attention to what happened to me, but you asked me where it came from. Yeah. And and so in this vision, to shorten it, there was this person calling me and calling me on the basis of John seventeen twenty one, when Jesus prayed for the unity of those who would be his disciples and, and calling me to be an agent of reconciliation an agent who would lay down his life if necessary mm. so that the church would see what unity really looked like. Yes. Um, and there's a whole bunch of background to that. But I had this vision, and in the vision, the Lord called me to lay down my life at his feet and say, take up this, preach this. This wow. is of me. I want you to do this. Wow. I've called you to do this. It's like, whoa. Go back to the hotel, get on my knees and say, what was that? And then go to bed thinking, I think it was God, but I've never had that kind of thing happen before. Right. Well, Ian, this thing happened several more times no over kidding. the next several years in several public settings as well as in private settings finally culminated in a series of dreams. And I'm not into dream interpretation at <laughs> all. I'm a very rational reform guy by background. So, so I started having these dreams and in the dreams, it was the same thing. Wow. And I'm standing up to preach, and at that point I'd preached in mega churches and promise keepers and all these places. I'm standing up to preach, and it's like, when are you going to do what I told you to do? Wow. Well, Lord, I, I will, but, uh, and then one of the dreams, I get up and I start giving this message, and people start getting up and walking out. No kidding. And I look out, and the crowd's all gone, and I'm staying there alone, and then I hear this voice saying, will you still follow me if they all leave? Wow. Um, yeah, Lord, I will. Um, I will. And so, by God's grace, I did. Wow. And 
Almost all of them left. <laughs> and then you came along. <laughs> and, then, and then we were at Chick-fil-A. That and was then it. we were at Chick-fil-A. That's the whole story, man. I mean, all my friends left. I had to make new friends. <laughs> and I am happy to be counted among your friends then. <laughs> now, they didn't all leave, but I mean, truly, yeah. most of my recognizable name friends there. I mean, it's kind of fun to be in a radio studio because there are radio programs <laughs> that used to have me that wouldn't have me anymore. Right. Uh, I got tainted. And what did I get tainted with? Well... He's compromised his faith. He's talking to Catholics. Oh, right. Oh, really? That's compri- compromised to talk to Catholics? Right. Where'd you get that? Mm. Um, I mean, or he's talking to those Methodists or those Lutherans or right. whatever. Right. Fill in the Fill blank. Fill in the blank, yeah. So, so it's like, oh, and then the internet stuff started. This, the internet was just starting to get popular by, you mm. know, at this point. At first it was, I mean, in a, in a magazine, a popular Christian magazine that, slandered me and i wrote him a letter and said you know you you slandered me and they printed my letter and letters to the editor but they gutted my letter and no one knew they gutted it and made me look terrible by gutting what i actually wrote so i realized you don't defend yourself don't even try right just stay the course yes follow the call of god and do what he told you to do and what he told me to do ian was to be an agent of receptive ecumenism, of the kind of life that is receptive towards the other and says, because you're a Christian, I welcome you into my life and I welcome you as my brother, as my friend, as my sister to learn, to love and to serve with you. And I began to try to live that out. And it sounds so simple, um, but living it was complicated. What I'm seeing now is that there are many under 40 Christians who, again, are just kind of fed up with the old stuff and they're saying, well, of course. So I don't quite know where I fit at 70, except I guess I'm the <laughs> old guy that kind of pioneered out into this direction. And, and I enjoy it with all my heart. And I intend to do it till the day I die. Well, you OK. So you mentioned this a little earlier that the the 40 and under crowd does sort of have this, of course, posture. But you had, you had mentioned. I also think that there's something that my generation can offer. What can you speak to that a little bit more? Like what what do young people, young leaders, young evangelicals, young Catholics need to learn from? those in their 60s, 70s, and 80s? I think I think what you can most learn from somebody, you know, my age is is uh, to learn to ask the kinds of questions that draw off of the wisdom of life experience. Mm. Um, and you're good at that. Thank and you. so that's not a false form of flattery. It's true. You're good at that. And that's part of why our friendship is what it is, is that in truth, it's mutuality. You give to me things that encourage me, and I give things to you that encourage you. Mm. I think that's I think that's the key. I think the other key is is to learn how um, I gave my final message at my before my retirement at our gathering in Wisconsin this year mm-hmm. in June. And it was on uh, Jesus calling us to be his friends. If you obey me, I will call you friends. And I said, I now realize that that the key to my life through my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and now to 70 is that I sought and made and preserved and loved my friends. Mm. And I believe that's what Jesus actually incarnated with the disciples. They weren't, they weren't teachers that he called to teach, <laughs> to take to seminary in the wilderness. <laughs> they were his friends. Yes. They right. were his dearest friends. Right. And three of them were especially dear friends. Uh-huh. Yes. And, and it's that friendship that is missing. Ecclesial leadership, we've taught so much stuff. I want to say garbage about friendship mm. and seminars and big name leaders. 
Nobody talks about ecclesial friendship, about Christian friendship as the basis of ministry in the church. We just don't get it. Your generation gets that intuitively. Hmm. I think my generation or people like me can help you put the theology and the scripture and the stuff around it from actually having tried to live it out for decades. And you think about how diverse that group of friends was for Jesus, right? Yes. Just at the surface, yes. yeah. right? A, a Roman trader, a zealot, yeah. a, I mean, people that you would never have guessed. Yeah. So if that's what socialist and far right Republicans, <laughs> right, the whole exactly. crowd, right? I exactly. mean, they were there in his group, totally his friends. But we look at his group of friends and seem to feel no conviction that our group of friends should look as equally as diverse, which is what I think makes what yes. you do more timely than ever. And I don't know if I'm just now paying more attention than I typically have, but it feels like the call to unity, to missional ecumenism is so mission critical. It's so urgent. And uh, mm-hmm. so that's what I want to talk to you about next a little bit. How do we actually get there? What are some of the things that you're seeing? What are some of the cautions? How do we actually live this out better? That's coming up next with Dr. John Armstrong here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. I wish you all could have seen John's face when that music came in. It's exactly how I was feeling. Your face perfectly embodied (laughs) what my heart was feeling. (laughs) That chuckle on the other side of the desk here is my friend and mentor, Dr. John Armstrong, and uh, all sorts of credentials. I could spend the rest of the show talking about your credentials, but the thing that I think has kind of drawn us to each other uh, is this insatiable desire for unity, for real unity. Exactly what you were saying, not just blanket uniformity, not just we all look and talk and act and think exactly the same. That's that's actually not unity at all. I think that's a boring picture of what I think a lot of people have been handed, which is why we've struggled to really see it. I'm curious, are you seeing growth in this area, like particularly Protestant Catholic? Are you seeing improvements there? Are there cautions to the types of growth and improvements you're seeing and like what are some encouragements or ways forward like help give us some meat on the bone some handles to really mm-hmm. grapple with this a little bit yeah there 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 has been uh, there has been movement from when i started down this road 25 plus years ago uh movement on many fronts but it i think it's important to say it's not institutional movement mm. there is a form of ecumenism and i've been part of it and i believe in it of institutions talking to institutions. Mm. So at the highest level of global Christianity, the Catholic Church talks to the Orthodox Church, right. the two largest Christian communions in the world. Right. The Methodists and the Catholics have conversations and papers and gatherings of scholars. The Lutherans, the Anglicans, the Baptists, the Pentecostals. Mm. All these groups have major global dialogical events with the Catholic Church. Mm. That's been going on for about 100 years especially the last 50 plus years since Vatican II. Right. That's good stuff. I speak in that world. I write in that world. I've published in that world. I'm speaking at a conference at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago this fall to scholars in missions who teach missions, Catholic and Protestant, Mm. giving a paper on the Pope and Mm. on my reading of the Pope in terms of his evangelism and mission ideas. And I'm a Protestant. So right, right. that kind of stuff goes on. And I like it. It's cool. I, I like scholarship. I like to dabble and do my work. But at heart, I'm still a practitioner yes. who believes that that scholarship needs to get out to people. Now, where I really see it happening, Ian, is I see in informal ways, in ways that you you can't put a structure around, I see things happening and they're, they're just, they're just exploding. Mm. Um, they're not massive. 
um, they're like I'm looking out the window at little puffy, fluffy clouds in the blue sky of a sunny day in Chicago. And, and they're like the little puffy clouds out there. Mm. It's not a totally blue sky. There's some clouds. And those clouds, I think, are filled with some little mini blessings that are falling on Christians who are serious about John 17, 21. Mm. They've seen it. They believe it. They can't let go of it because it's it's caught them and taken them into it in the spirit and prayer of Jesus. And they've understood that the Lord's great prayer was for the unity of his church. And they've just been caught up in Jesus's prayer. They, mm. they can't let go because they've been taken. Right. So so I see that happening. Um, and as you know, what happened to the ministry that I began all those years ago was as it began to wind down, I for decades had said, when the time comes for me to step down, yes. I want to graciously, faithfully step down. And I believe probably at that point in time that the ministry I've been doing should also shut down. Mm. Why? Because I don't believe that I believe churches should go on, but I believe most other kinds of ministries, unless they're large ministries of of service and compassion and things like that, that generally speaking, one person led ministries ought mm. to just stop. Mm. We don't need them. God will raise up somebody else. Mm. It's his work. So I presented that to the board of the <laughs> ministry and said, I'm going to retire and it'll be two years or three years, but you can bank on it. I'm going to step down. Really? Who's going to take your place? I said, no one. I've been saying that for years. It's right. like, knock, knock. Have you been listening? <laughs> right. so, so we got kind of sat there kind of stunned and, and one of the board members, who you know well, is a Catholic priest in the city. He he kind of used some colorful language to say, <laughs> uh, "Why did I come on this board if you're going to step down?" You know, like I don't get it. What is going on here? Was I misled? Did I? Did you not give me the warnings? Mm. I said, "Well, I'm sorry, but this has kind of been a part of the drinking water here for a while." So we sat around and and uh, in Green Lake, Wisconsin, and we prayed and we talked. We took a break. We came back and our good friend George Koch asked the group, what is there in the DNA of what we've been about by surrounding this man's gifts and his mission that might be something God has put in us mm. and that it ought to go on beyond him and his leadership with a with a form, who knows what the form looks like, right. but it ought to be something that has changed us that we share with others that are on this journey. Mm. And this is where the Catholics were big because they said, well, that's how Catholic orders start. Right. That's how movements in the Catholic church start. Now, shift gears for a minute. How do movements start in the evangelical church? Somebody gets a grand idea. God blesses it. And they run off with it and they split from the church and they divide Christians <laughs> and you like them or you don't like them. Right. And they're over here building another thing, mm. right? In the Catholic church, it's a beautiful thing. You don't leave the church. You stay in the church. But the church is such a big tent that it can incorporate all these gifts, right. which we miss in our having separated, which is tragic. So the Catholic said to us, well, we think God has given a charism, a calling to this guy, and we think God is now passing it on to us mm. and to others who will come behind us. So the question became, within a few hours, how do we do that? I don't know. Maybe we wait on God and ask him and learn a lot and study movements and see what he's done in the past and what we think he's doing now, and, and we talk and we pray, and we did that for three years. Mm. Now, it's interesting. I said earlier, I'm 70. When I was 40, I couldn't wait three years for anything. Right. Man, at 50, it was a little better. At 60, I was thinking, at 70, I can wait three years. Wow. You say, why? You're, you're closer to the end than the beginning. <laughs> exactly. Because I'm closer to the end. I don't have to hurry up. Oh, I just wow. need to keep processing and, and doing what I should be doing. Yeah. So none of us were in a hurry. 
And that was part of the key. We just waited and asked and listened and, and invited people to come and interact with us. And they came and interacted and they went home and some of them came back. And the process goes on until finally this year, a few, two months ago, we formed a covenant community of Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox Christians from all backgrounds, mm-hmm. black, white, Asian, Hispanic, millennials, a few Gen Z's, boomers, Xers. We're all together, male and female. Love it. Gay and straight, mm-hmm. that'll shock some people. Mm-hmm. But but the whole community's there, and you know what draws them there? They all confess, I love Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, and I want to talk to other people who want to follow him and pursue unity together, That's period. Right. That's so say, well, what's your confession of faith? We don't have one. Mm. Well, why not? Don't you believe in him? Yeah, I actually believe in him. I, I can say the Apostles' Creed, mm-hmm. but the Apostles' Creed never mentions love. The Apostles' Creed never calls us into this unity. It assumes things, and it puts up fences to keep out false teaching, which is important, yes. but it's not a first importance. First importance is to get people to Jesus, to get them around Jesus and in Jesus and in each other. That's right. And like we jumped that lesson to go fight the fights over the doctrine. Yes, exactly. So exactly. it's like, this is so basic, but it's been lost. Mm. And I think it's being recovered. And I think just like the clouds I see, I think they're little clouds and they're dropping a little. So I get emails, I get calls, I get contacts from people all over this country and beyond saying, I feel like I'm weird, but this is what I'm thinking. And I say, you're not weird. (laughs) God's doing this. That's right. You're not weird, man. I I assure you, God is doing this and you're on the right track. That's so good. All right. So I imagine people might be listening with bated breath. How can they learn more about this community? What is it called? Where do they go? I want to make sure that we put that out out in front of everybody. The community is called The Initiative. And you can go to theinitiative.org. I think that's right. Yeah, I should have looked this remember. up beforehand. <laughs> yeah, theinitiative.org. And me, you can go to johnharmstrong.com. And that'll go right to you, and they that'll can contact right you. To, if someone's yes. listening and they're like, it, okay, I have a thousand more questions yes, now. Yes, they can contact me through that website, and they can write, email me through that website, and they can... I know the website will connect to the initiative. So if I, I can't remember if it's .org or .com, I actually am not making these calls anymore. <laughs> I have retired, which means the people in leadership, I'm not on the team, I'm not on the council, I don't preach. I don't lead. I'm a member of the community. Mm -hmm. That's all I am. Now, you say, well, why? You did all this work. Because to me, Ian, the way you allow things to happen finally is you get you step aside and you let people lead. You're there to encourage and to help, but you're not going to be the co-leader. You're done. That's right. I can't tell you how many men have called me who followed people and who said, Thank you for what you're doing. And I say, why? It's no big deal. Oh, it is a big deal. I follow this or I follow that. And they won't they won't let me do what's right. in my heart to do. Right. And you did that. And I said, there's nothing heroic about that. It's just a basic philosophy about serving and leading and and and, and giving things away because yes. they were given to me. That's I, right. But that's that's boomer stuff. And again, I think the next generation thinks very differently. I think you're right on. And I did just look it up. It is the initiative dot org. I see Scott Brill's lovely face right there on the homepage. Also coming up next, I want to ask you about your book, Costly Love. It's the uh, it's the first time I've ever been asked to write an endorsement for a book. So I really, really believe in this book. I want to get maybe a little political, if that's okay. Why not wrap up the show with a little politics? And uh, that's been Dr. John Armstrong here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Brian Fromm is out for the rest of the show, but don't fret, he'll be back tomorrow. But I'm so excited to have in the studio, in the flesh, incarnate, he might say, Dr. John Armstrong, my friend, a mentor, an author, preacher, leader, a missional ecumenist. If you don't know what that is, go listen to the podcast. But here's here's why I want to end the show, John, because 
our conversations, and I can't tell you how many times I've wished we've recorded our conversations, <laughs> which maybe that'd be more dangerous than I realize, actually. But um, <laughs> you have such a capacity to see the common thread in things that I think transcends a lot of the rhetoric that I tend to see online. And I just want to tee up this question and just see where you run with it. Okay. Because I'd mentioned it kind of during the break, this idea of a theology of politics. Mm -hmm. What does that, what does that even look like in our divided time right now? Hmm. Great question, because there was a time in my journey in my thirties and forties when I would have said the church just needs to stay out of politics. Right. Um, In fact, that was what, uh, in the 60s and into the early 70s, I think the common response of more conservative and evangelical churches and pastors and leaders was stay out of politics. Hmm. Then in the Carter years, in the late 70s, we began to talk about engaging politics. And uh, no one ever really stopped to say, hey, wait a minute, it's good that we engage politics. Staying out was a bad thing. Hmm. But how are we engaging? Why are we engaging? To what end or purpose are we engaging in the political? Simply as a raw use of power for what we believe is the common good over against others? Mm. Or do we actually have a kind of civility? Are we rooted in love for God and love for our neighbors that embraces a civility and a kindness and a decency that is at its core what is necessary to preserve what we call democracy in a pluralistic culture? Can Christians actually lead the way, as it were, rather than just simply be the party of opposition? Hmm. Um, so that's where I think we went wrong. So when we jumped back into politics, we had been in politics as Christians, Bible-believing Christians long before, mm-hmm. but we'd been out of it for decades. And we jumped back in in the Carter and then into the, in the Reagan years, we jumped in big time. Right. And we actually issued voter guides telling people what the eight important issues were. Like six of them had nothing to do with what the Bible teaches. Right. They were just they were about economics and about red China and the Soviet Union and strong military. It's like, whoa, wait a minute. I've read my Bible for years. Where mm. are you getting all this stuff? Mm. And they want me to hand these out to my congregation. I think I was the only evangelical pastor in town that said, leave those out. I don't want them. No kidding. Uh, I remember when the prayer in the school's decision was made back in that same era and Christians were up in arms, you kick God out of public life. I said, good Lord, help us. <laughs> you know, I actually believe we should have taken prayer out of the school, but mm. no one ever asked why we just said, it's you, you hate prayer. You hate God. This mm. is a secular country. Huh. Well, it, and it, it was a Christian. No, it wasn't a Christian country. It was a Protestant country. The reason for these things like prayer in the school and putting uh, uh, putting God in the Pledge of Allegiance in the 1950s and all this was to kind of build a religion that was mm. inherently Protestant but civil enough to let Catholics in the door now. Mm. And uh, so, so we have a long history of messing this up. Yeah. And quite frankly, we messed it up again. So where did we go bad? Well, we lost the pursuit of the common good. Mm. We lost the idea of a common life that Christians share with others. Yeah. So I referred uh, when we were we were off air to the fact that there's a, a scholar at Duke named Luke Bretherton. He's an Anglican who's written a wonderful encyclopedic big book. Most people won't want to devour a big book, <laughs> but it's called Christ. I love the title Christ in the Common Life, Political Theology and the Case for Democracy. Wow. And Bretherton is has a whole chapter on Pentecostals, a whole chapter on Catholics, a whole chapter on evangelicals. No kidding. And, and he integrates what's the Holy Spirit's role in politics? What's the what's the role of the church in politics? And he comes at it from every possible angle to say 
that what we're pursuing is the common life of all people for their betterment, for their good, for their protection, for for uh, the love of one another. Mm-hmm. And that's where the gospel comes to bear on right. a democracy like ours, not on particular issues that are the issues of evangelicals over against Catholics or others. That's really good. Now, what I said to you, what I said to you earlier that I think you wanted me to also touch on at this point is that, you know, in seeing ecumenism or a pursuit of unity or oneness between Catholics and evangelicals over the last 40 years, it has grown and grown and grown. And I'm asked, is that what you're talking about? Mm. And there's a sense in which I want to say yes, but another profound sense in which I'll say no Mm. for this reason. Um, the, what's drawn Catholics and evangelicals together since the late 1970s through the eighties, nineties and into the new millennium, the new century is more of an interest in a few political issues that they agree on Mm. pro-life. Now I said to you earlier, I'm pro-life, but the term has been so co-opted politically for a pro-life means this view and this view only. That's right. And this is, this is the issue. And we've, we've, We've uh, marginalized those who don't agree with us on every political aspect of how to be pro-life that that we've divided Christian from Christian over pro-life. Mm. And so we, we become uh, uh, stridently committed to this issue of life in a way that we can't hear anything else that's important to the common good of society and for the ethical and moral persuasiveness of the church in that society where it seeks the common good of all, not That's just right. for Christians. That's right. That's right. So, so, so what's happened, unfortunately, Ian, in my, my perspective of traveling all over the country and talking to bishops and theologians and priests and lay people in the Catholic church is two things. One is I constantly get the response from especially lay Catholics. How do you know so much about the Catholic church? You're not even a Catholic. I say, well, I spent 25 years with Catholics. <laughs> I spent 25 years with your theology and frankly, I love the Catholic Church more than most Catholics. I mean, most Catholics don't go to church anymore, so I must love it more than them because <laughs> I go to Catholic services and I love Catholic priests and they're some of my best friends. Same, by the way. So, 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 so you know, the, but, but what I've seen is that the energy right now of many Catholics is for conservative political issues. Mm-hmm. And so that brings them to the conservative politically involved Protestants mm-hmm. who are mostly evangelicals. And, and that's the moment in which we're living I think, again, the younger generation is going to say, uh, that's not that's not nearly enough. That's right. You know, you may be right about some of these issues, but those issues are not unity. Those issues are mm. just issues that we can agree on. We can check the box on. But that doesn't create unity that will really last and will transcend issues and bring us back to this pursuit of the political good of all, mm. not just our party or our tribe or Christians, for that matter. I'll, I'll say one more thing that maybe flows out of this. It's controversial, I believe that Christians today ought to be the leading defenders of the political freedoms of Muslims to be Muslims of all other people in our society. And I'll give you, for instance, in secular France, Muslim women are legally not aware, uh, allowed to wear the hijab, the head covering in America. They are. Mm. What's the difference? America is a country that not only honors freedom of religion, it also honors freedom from religion, both. Mm. And it argues that people can practice their religion openly and publicly so long as it doesn't violate a law that that destroys the common good. Yes. Therefore, you cannot do child sacrifice in the name of your religion. That's Our right. country will prosecute you. That's right. But you can wear a hijab. That's you right. can wear prayer beads. Come on. You can kneel on the on the on the sidewalk and pray and protest. You can do all those things because America is a nation not just of laws for protecting religions 
but a place where you can express religion or no religion with complete freedom. I would give my life. This will sound strange for the freedom of Muslims to practice their faith in this country. In fact, I would give my life for an atheist to be an atheist. Okay, that that is the way to end the show right there. We've given you a bunch of titles, but what you heard just there, I think, is preacher John Armstrong bringing the heat. Hopefully not for the last time. Brother, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It has been such a gift. You can learn more at theinitiative.org. His book, Costly Love, I highly encourage you to get it. CostlyLove.com. It has been such a joy to have you here today on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're